like if I have a game that gets you to change a habit, like, you know, maybe, maybe it helps you quit smoking or it gets you to exercise. It's not necessarily an educational game, but it is a game designed to change you. And we use the phrase uh, transformational games to help us remember about the change that we're trying to make. And so I think the mistake a lot of people make when they go to create educational games of any kind is they, they kind of just jump in and they assume that, oh, okay, I just need to reward you to do it. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Jesse Schell. Thanks for making time. Hey, glad to be here. So we got a lot of fun stuff we could talk about. I definitely want to talk about your time at Disney and the company you've built that, that makes these games, and maybe just jump into it. Can you tell us about this James Bond-type VR game that you guys have been doing, or is either oh, yeah, coming sure. out or is out T- tell me oh yeah that. no it's 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 been out a little while uh, we actually came out i think late 2016 so it's been out a few years now oh yeah there's a game confused. called oh no it's all right i mean the, the vr world is kind of kind of crazy but uh, yeah no this is a game called i expect you to die and it's basically kind of like doing an escape room but in virtual reality and we, it was the first VR game that Shell Games came out with, and it's done really well for us. We've continued to add content for it over the last few years, and it's, it's been going really well. That's great. Well, you know, I got to hear more about your story and, and kind of, you know, starting with building a fishing game back when you were a kid on computers and, and kind of your evolution <laughs> through there. But I'd love to hear more about your time at Disney before we jump in some of the other stuff. Can you talk about getting on with Disney engine, uh, Imagineering and what that was like? Yeah, sure. That was a big deal for me uh, going to Disney Imagineering. So I was there from 1995 to about 2002. I the, the group that I joined was a group that was the Disney Virtual Reality Studio that was formed in the mid-90s when virtual reality was kind of becoming a thing. Disney said, hey, maybe this is a thing. Maybe we this is important for our theme parks. So they formed a team to start working on it. It was a team of maybe 20, 25 people. And I ended up getting hired in there, which was, was a huge step for me because previously even though I'd been kind of a hobbyist when it came to making video games, my jobs had been at places like IBM and uh, Bell Communications Research, you know, the phone company, that kind of thing. So getting into there was a, was a huge deal, and it was a, an amazing experience. We worked on a thing called Disney Quest, which was sort of Disney's virtual reality theme park down in Florida, and it, it was open for about 19 years. And after we'd done all that stuff, we moved on to work on Toontown Online, which was the first massively multiplayer game for kids, and that was hugely fun. So it was an amazing team, and, and I learned so much about the, the theme park space and just the way the whole Disney company works. And, of course, you know, to this day, I still do projects with, with the Walt Disney Company. One of the wonderful things I learned is that it's totally possible to continue to work with them from the outside as, as a contractor and a vendor and, and still, be, still be part of the, the magic, which is really fun. Yeah. So being a professor of entertainment technology at Carnegie Mellon, mm-hmm. 
do your students think that's really cool? Do you get a lot of questions about Disney year after year from the students or what? what oh, are they yeah. Into? I mean, you, you always have a certain number of students for whom they really look at that as kind of a, a dream job. You know, people who've, since they were very young, have found the Disney parks, the Disney films very inspiring. Pardon my ringing phones here. You know, it's a busy day. And uh, yeah, we have a ton of students who are just really inspired by these things. There's no doubt about it. So, you know, we, we've had some other interesting folks with Disney experience on the show. One of my friends, Fred Larson, was an executive for years. Can you talk about what people who haven't worked there maybe don't understand? I mean, we all think it's great from the outside, but it seems like a lot of the stories from the inside are just as great. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the thing that people don't comprehend about the Walt Disney Company, most people think of it as like some kind of monolithic situation, right? They, they, you know, they hear Disney and it seems so organized and, and they think of it as just one big entity when really it's not that way. It's really a collection of little different groups that are all doing really different things, which is part of what makes it super interesting, but it creates a very different picture when you're on the inside because, you know, the people who are working on the video games are like, have known nothing about the people who are working on the theme parks, who know nothing about the people who are working on the movies, just because, you know, everybody's playing their position working on what they're supposed to work on so the 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 part that's amazing about it is just the quality of the of the people um that are there the you're just constantly working with you know world-class everything world-class i don't know painters and artists and writers and engineers and just people who are just world-class experts in so many different fields it has this real kind of renaissance quality to it. And and I think I will argue more so at um, Disney Imagineering because of Imagineering's unique history. Most people don't comprehend that the that Disneyland was not built by the Walt Disney Company. Walt wanted to build it and he went to the board of directors and said, "Hey, I want to do this thing." And they said, "That's crazy. We're not going to support that." And so you can forget it. And so he said, well, all right, I guess we're not doing this. I'll go and do it outside. So he started a second company that was called WED and used that company to make Disneyland. Disney was a a minority investor in it, but he got money from other places and then built Disneyland into a big success. And then over the years after it was a success, Disney gradually bought it back. But there's something in the culture of Disney Imagineering that still has that kind of, you know, you can't tell us what to do. We know what's right. Whether we have your corporate support or not, we're going to do what's right. Interesting. And and in your mind, where has that shown up as the advantage? Well, it's it, the, the advantage it gives them is it means they can do stuff that is maybe a little hard to, to prove to the bean counters that's a good mm. idea. Yeah. You know, I love there's a story John Hench used to tell. He's one of the old time Disney designers talking about building Spaceship Earth. And I remember hearing him tell this story. So Spaceship Earth being the big ball at Epcot, right? The, you know, and there's a whole ride inside it. And John's vision was to have this freestanding geodesic dome. And so he explains to the engineers, like, when we build Epcot Center, this is what I want to do. I want a freestanding geodesic dome. And the engineers, they all look at each other and they say, I'm not sure that's possible. He's like, well, can you figure out, please, if it is? And they come back and they're really proud. And they say, yeah, we've been able to show mathematically that this actually cannot be done. (laughs) And he said, oh, well, that's too bad. Okay, what if 
you just built three quarters of a geodesic dome, and then you built a one quarter and you hung it underneath. Would that be possible? And they'll all look at each other and they're like, well, that's going to take some math. And he's okay, go figure it out. And they went away and they come back and they're very crabby now. And they say, well, it is possible, <laughs> but it would be very expensive. And when John would tell the story at this point, he just looked down at the table and say, and you know what? It was. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's kind of the thing about imaginary. Like it's it's because the thing is you're gonna build a new you're gonna build a new attraction at a theme park. How can you prove that that's a good investment? Mm. You just can't. You can't even look back at the last attraction and say, well, how much money did that earn? Because you don't know. Because all you know is like, well, the park overall took in this much money and this many people rode the ride and you can kind of make guesses. So it puts them in a position where all they can really do is kind of make a lot of guesses and try and build the most awesome thing possible. And that's it. That's just a real interesting kind of culture. Yeah. Well, you know, I was excited when your PR people or whoever reached out to us was, was talking about you for one specific thing. You know, I know, you know, after you're, you, when you make the transition over to Carnegie Mellon, you've got this time in the summers and you start Shell Games. And to me, I'm fascinated on the work you've done around games and helping businesses improve skills like work skills through games. Can you talk about like firemen's or hospitals or any of the stuff you've done in that world? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Because a big part of what we do at, at, at Shell Games, we often, you know, we, we kind of have four lines of business. We do home entertainment games, we do theme parks and museums, we do educational games, and we do health games. And the, the things you're talking about both fit in the realm of educational and, and health games. Yeah, so over the years, we've done a, a number of different things. I'd actually spun up a whole separate company at one point about uh, training systems for firefighters. But lately, we've been doing a lot in the, in the health space. One of our more well-known games is a thing called uh, Night Shift, which was a game designed to help ER doctors deal with trauma situations, because it turns out that it's not a thing they're always the best at, unfortunately, because they don't, trauma, trauma cases are rare in an ER. And when an ER doctor gets a trauma case, they have to make a decision. Are we going to treat it here? or we're going to send them off to a trauma center. And this is a tough decision to make, and the doctors don't get very good feedback about it. If, if they do it right, if they do it wrong, nobody ever really comes out and kind of uh, can say that because everybody's just moved on to other things. And so we were approached by Dr. Deepika Mohan from University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and she had built a simulation to try and improve this training, and she was disappointed that it wasn't really working. It, would, it gave the doctors lots of practice at dealing with these cases, but the problem was when they would test them a few months later, it didn't really make much of a difference. It didn't really stick, and her theory was that if the content could be made more emotional, the doctors might remember it better, and we thought that sounded sensible given that the uh, memory centers and the emotional centers are in the same place in the brain. And of course, we remember the most emotional moments. So then we had this interesting challenge. Of how are we going to create a game that makes, creates for meaningful emotion in the players? And so we created this interesting adventure story about a young doctor going to 
a hospital in a new town, but it's, 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 this, this isn't a random town. He's going to this place because it's, where, it's the town where his grandfather had lived. And he'd had a close relationship with his grandfather, but his grandfather suddenly kind of ghosted him and just wasn't connecting with him anymore. And he was very frustrated about this. But then his grandfather passes away, and now he's left to kind of clean up the house and everything. And the house has a lot of mysteries in it. It seems like something was going on with his grandfather. And so in, the, in this story, you are kind of solving the mystery of this house, but also <laughs> during the day, you are a working doctor at a hospital having to actually solve real medical cases. And the people that you meet, well, it just so happens that some of the people in this town, well, some of them knew your grandfather, and they have some various clues and things about what's going on. So you're doing this on two levels. You're having the emotional story of this, this uh, relationship, uh, but then also you're building relationships with coworkers in the hospital and with patients and their families. And, and what we found was situations where you know you get to know these people and then you end up making a mistake and like they suffer or they sometimes die would be situations that would be very meaningful and very memorable to, to doctors. So yeah, so these, we, we are always very interested in any way that we can use games to solve problems that might not be able to be easily solved any other way. Yeah. You know, I think, so one of the things we're trying to do different is instead of just trying to go head to head selling our investment fund against all the other ones out there, right? Uh We're going to try and go a different direction and instead try to help entrepreneurs make more money so they can afford to buy passive income from us. Uh-huh. And so one of the things that I'm really interested in, so I've been doing leadership training and, and lean process improvement training with the consultants that work for us for uh, special ops guys and uh, different corporate America and startup people. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is this idea when people can do the meaningful repetitions outside the comfort zone and, you know, myelinate neural connections in the brain. Right. Uh-huh. And how much more fun that is when you make it fun, when you make it a game, when you make it a sport, right? And so one of the things I'd be interested, you know, for all the entrepreneurs who are listening, who are thinking, okay, you know, the the things I've learned, the habits I've built have got our business to this level. And I want to get to the next level. And I read the latest business book or whatever that I think will tell me how, but I'm just so stuck in like, I really want to get to that. But there's so many fires with just, just keeping things going as it is. I find myself not getting to the next level. And then when I try and tell the team about it, they kind of like roll their eyes and they like, they endure me because I'm the boss, but they're kind of like, it's not broke. Why do we have to fix it, boss? Even just starting there, what kind of ideas do you have of like principles that they may want to think through for both themselves and, and their team? If, if they need to build new processes, if they need to think differently, but you know, the status quo is heavy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a problem for everybody. You know, every everybody you got your you got your ruts. You've got what's normal, and a lot of times, in order to change things, you've got to find a way to to kind of get something new, right? You've got you've got to do something different, and that can be tough. That can be really tough for people to 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 do that and kind of find the time. So, I guess one thing is it's really important to make it a a priority to do that the you know this this the old the old idea of you've got uh you know everybody's got urgent things to do but are they all important and are you making time for the important things that uh don't necessarily seem urgent you know like hey i'd wanted to i've i've heard that 
that business book is important, and you know, how am I going to check it out? How am I going to make time for that? And you know, finding a way to carve out some time. I, I the thing I try and do is every morning I carve out an hour of time that I'm not allowed to look at email, that I can only kind of work on these sort of longer term important things. And I think that's one way uh, to do it. And, and is that other, in the office yeah. or is that before you go to the office or what? It depends. Sometimes I do it right at the, sometimes I go in early and do it at the office. Other times I'll do it at home and then go into the office. It's different on different days. And by no means do I hit it every day, but it's on my calendar every day. And I try and hit it as often as I can. And, and just um, for reference, how big is your shop? Like how many employees have you guys grown to? Or We have 130 people okay. at our place. Okay. Yep. Keep going. Yep. Oh, anyway, so I think that's one thing. And then another thing, of course, is deadlines. You know, de deadlines are, are kind of magic, and they really, they really can make things happen. So if there's a thing like that and you care about it, you'd be like, oh, I've been meaning to do it. I've been meaning to do it. I've been meaning to do it. Well, guess what? Tell everybody, hey, guess what I'm going to do? We're gonna, let's do like a brown bag meeting, you know, next Wednesday, and I'm going to give you a presentation on this. <laughs> um, okay, now now I got to do it, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to lead a round table. A social tell pressure. You all about it. Yeah, now you got that social pressure, especially people like, oh, I've heard about that. I'm really interested. And now you're like, wow, I really got to do this. That that kind of thing, it's it's kind of a cheap trick, but it, it, it works and it kind of gets, you know, gets things going, gets things happening. And then, of course, there's delegating, right? You're like, hey, wow, I really care about this. I don't have time to do it. Can you, if you can find someone else who... You know, some young go-getter who's if if you if you're in, in the ability, yeah. you have the ability to kind of assign that to somebody. Then he's like, "Hey, can you check this out and kind of report back and tell us all about it?" Sure. So I don't know. There's a million. Well, there's a million ways, yeah. really. Well, maybe we can do this. Can you tell us? So let's say that we wanted to we wanted to build a game to teach people Warren Buffett's principles for investing, right? What are yeah. some like game theories that people who haven't spent a lot of time in this space may not recognize are, are super helpful or what are what are what are some things that people who just they haven't put in the years you've put in yeah what might be an early mis like rookie mistake or what might be a good place to start yeah 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 no exactly barbara chamberlain and i talk about this a lot we've actually been working on a book together about educational games or the phrase we use is transformational games the the we use the phrase transformational games because there's a lot of games that are meant to change you, but they're not necessarily educational. Like if I have a game that gets you to change a habit, like, you know, maybe, maybe it helps you quit smoking or it gets you to exercise. It's not necessarily an educational game, but it is a game designed to change you. And we use the phrase uh, transformational games to help us remember about the change that we're trying to make. And so I think the mistake a lot of people make when they go to create educational games of any kind is they they kind of just jump in and they assume that oh okay i just need to reward you to do it i'm going to give you rewards to do it and then you're going to love that because if people love game rewards and uh, game rewards are going to get you to do it but of course the truth is like making games is super hard and mm -hmm. most games fail mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it's not like people just love any old game rewards people love game rewards when it's connected to something that's interesting and important to them so beginning with that stuff doesn't isn't really the right place to begin a much better place to begin is to figure out what problem am i actually solving like you say we want people to learn you know warren buffett's principles well you know why yeah for, for example you know one of my buddies were trying to get to be an investor right now they did you know 50 million in revenue last year him and his three partners right 
I mean, their staff, but three owners. So he's taking a chunk of that home and that's happened for a few years. So he's, he's building more of a family office where he's got dedicated professionals just to invest his money, say, right. And, and he really wants to make sure that if they're making financial decisions on his behalf, that they're following, they're following those Warren Buffett principles, even when he's not around. So that, that's the why. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so, okay. So he wants them to kind of follow these principles. So then the next question is, you get into this, you get into the question of, well, if these principles are so good and useful, what is the barrier that stops people from already absorbing them? And, you know, if it's, if it's just, Hey, here they are, I've laid them out. What is it? And then you start to get into more detailed questions of like, well, okay. Yeah. People read them and people understood them in principle, but they don't really see how to integrate it into what they do on a daily basis. And what we really want to do is to get them, we don't actually care about them knowing the principles and being able to say the principles. We want them to take actions that embody these principles. Mm -hmm. And now you get into a question of like, well, okay, well, what actions exactly? And, And how does that work? And why aren't people doing the actions that way already? And so, the real heart of creating successful transformational games comes down to what we often talk about as, as a three-step process, right? So you figure out your problem and part of figuring out the problem is you're trying to figure out, well, what is the change that I really want to make? The, the actual, how, how will a person be different? after this process and you visualize that change and state that change as strongly as possible. And just for clarity. So could an example be like you start working up scenarios where you want them to make a change, you know, you know, most people would do this, but if you're, you know, if you've got the Warren Buffett principles, like in the blood, then you're going to see it through this filter and you would take this action instead. Is it scenarios like that or is it different? Scenarios, that's a great way to do it. You kind of talk about like, look, here's, here's, how, here's how people are doing it now, but here's how we want them to do it. So for example, I was giving the example of those, the, the, the ER doctors, right? There were certain sort of rules of thumb that they were using that weren't great rules of thumb, and really they needed to be replaced by other rules of thumb and, and instincts. Things about making sure you take into account not just the type of the injury, but the age of the patient things that aren't that people don't normally think about. So you can kind of figure out, you know, these heuristics, because that kind of, sounds like a lot of what you're talking about there as well, is figuring out these heuristics that people should be using in these situations. So kind of painting the picture of like, yeah, here's what they should be. And now you have the question, why aren't, why isn't it already happening? You know, you know, why, what are the barriers that are keeping this from already taking place? And then you figure out, well, okay, I, I see what those, like, I, like, you know, maybe it's just, well, people have certain habits. Okay, well, do we, how can we break those habits? Or maybe people have misinformation. You know, they actually believe that doing it a certain way is the right way. And so is it about correcting that misinformation? Yeah, what if it, um, what if it was about correcting? Okay, so now you have a question of, all right, so they have misinformation. So is it... it is it, if it's as, is it as simple as, hey, guess what? Here's new information. And they're like, what? I had no idea. Okay, great. I'm all done. I'm never going to make that mistake again. Sometimes it's that way. Other times it's like, yeah, well, okay, that might be right. But, you know, I'd have to think about that a lot. And I don't really care that much. So sometimes it's, 
It's about making making it emotionally important to them. So right? like I'm thinking of one, just as you say that, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. you know, diversification, right? Mm-hmm. The mutual fund companies and the people with a real agenda on that have, have pushed that to a point that if you look at the most successful investors in history, you know, people like the Warren Buffetts, they call themselves focus investors, right? And he says, you know, hey, the reverse of don't put all your eggs in one basket is not put your eggs in as many baskets as humanly possible, right? right. Mm-hmm. And and yet there's like a societal value for diversification. I mean, it's almost like gospel for, for right. so many folks, right? Uh-huh. And yet the, the results of the highest performers contradict this like known wisdom that, you know, you're, you're your dad's dad had baked into a psyche by society. Yeah, right. So now it's right. You've got this barrier because people, people believe this at a, at a certain deep level. And now the question, you've got to actually create a situation where people are going to be able to dig down and confront this, either confronting it through examples in terms of what they would do or you, or with data where you can kind of show them like, Hey, you know, look, here's the data. But the thing that people don't realize about data so often is, People think about, oh, I'm going to present data and people's logical minds are going to take over. But people don't make decisions with their logical minds. Mm -hmm. That's not how anything works. People make decisions emotionally. That's what emotions are for. Emotions are to help us make decisions. And so you get into this question of can I create, you know, what what emotions do I need to bring to bear to, to kind of get you to sort of change your thinking about this? It may be an emotion of shame, right? You may show that like, Hey, I'm going to have you play a little a little investment simulation game and you play it and like you do really badly and you're like, "Wait, what?" And it's like, "Yeah, wow, because you follow those principles and they're not right, man. They, they, here, let me show you the proper principles." And and you're like, "Wow, I'm kind of ashamed. I really thought I was good at this." So it could be shame. Sometimes it's uh, other negative emotions, fear, right? You know, you you're you you get somebody afraid of like, "Wow, you're you're really going to you, when you go out in the world, you're probably going to really screw this up because you don't know what you're doing. People are like, whoa, I better, I better really, really focus. Yeah. Or sometimes it's all about helping another person. Very often we'll use that strategy in games where it's not so much you're going to do this for yourself, but here's some vulnerable person who needs help, and you're going to go in there and help them. And, and maybe your goal, maybe we're going to make a game where your goal is to teach them about the best principles. Because one of the things we know about teaching is, you know, it, it – Teaching makes you learn in this whole other way because when we're out in the world doing things, we just do stuff. And But when you teach, you do stuff, and people say, how should I do it? And you say, you do it like this. And then they say, well, why? And you're like, oh, yeah, why? Why, why do you do that? And you see so you're constantly confronting that. And so even when you teach a virtual character to do something, you find yourself confronting those same questions. So the... The three-step process really comes down to what is that change I really want to make? What are the activities that are going to bring about that change? Because everything I've said up till now, not really about games so far, right? It's, it's about maybe I'll go through an emotional situation or I'll help somebody with something. Various activities because that's what brings change about. Then finally, you have the question of, well, what kind of game situation would most encourage those activities? And that's how when you finally kind of bring the game in and wrap it all up into an experience. I love it. Well, listen, when's this book going to come out? That's a super great question. Uh, A deadline would probably help us a great deal. (laughs) But I don't know, next couple of years, probably. We've been working on it for a while, kind of slow and steady, but we're really, we're really ramping up to 
bang a lot out this this summer. So I'm hoping the next year or two. We're okay. Well, you should come back on the show when you've got it done. Let's have you back on the yeah, show. Yeah, definitely. Talk I'll, about definitely, I'll let you um, know. It's a good spot to talk about the 10th anniversary of your other book, The Art of Game Design. I'm looking at it on Amazon right now. It seems oh, like yeah, that's been right. a successful yeah. book. Yeah, no, that book has done really well. Yeah, The Art of Game Design has been very popular. It's used as a textbook in a lot of places for teaching game design, but also lots of people just kind of pick it up uh, on their own. Yeah, that that book succeeded, much, did much greater success than I'd ever imagined. I love it. Well, listen, we're going we're gonna to cover more of this in part two of the interview, but for people who want to connect with you, what, what are the best places? Sure. Well, you can always, you know, shellgames.com is, uh, if you want to find out more about what's going on at uh, my studio at Shell Games, you can always go to jessieshell.com and you've got, that'll have links to everything that, that I'm doing, my, my things I'm doing at Carnegie Mellon, stuff about my book, etc. Either of those places is a great place to go. Great. And everybody, Shell is S-C-H-E-L-L. Thanks yep. so much. Okay, everybody, tune back in for part two.